Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How you doing? I hear you loud and clear and hopefully everybody hears me the same way. Yeah, we uh, we did get some, some uh, very helpful feedback about an issue that we already knew about by the time the episode posted that we couldn't do yeah. anything about. Um, but I do appreciate people uh, uh, chiming in. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, we have the steps we have taken. Uh, uh, the journal address. sounds good. I listened back to the journal. Oh, so I think okay. we're, I think we're in good shape. Um, other than that, I've just been uh, rocking out to some music on my tweakdaddy.com earbuds. Uh, what music, David? Well, tweakdaddy.com first is what I, what I, what I want to start with. I don't want to bury the lead here. The lead here oh, is right, 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 tweakdaddy.com. Yeah. Tweakdaddy.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day. Uh, today, I was listening to a... Um, I was trying to look up where they're from and i can't uh figure it out but a band called they're called i don't know if you say it andromeda but it's not spelled like the andromeda galaxy which is eda it's andromeda so i don't know if it's like is ida andromeda i'm not sure maybe it's just a misspelling but they're a uh andromeda it could be that maybe andromeda yeah they're a um prog metal band uh real nerdy stuff um sounded oh it's uh, actually a one man um uh band uh sounded great on my tweaked audio tweaked earbuds that are available at a low low price tweakedaudio.com. but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tyler? Yes? We're going to get into it in a minute. We're okay. going to get into talking about our topic, which is, it's thankfully, 2020 is halfway over. We are almost halfway done uh, with this year and everything is going to be great and bright and sunny and happy in 2021. Yeah. Guaranteed. <laughs> That's, I do appreciate that like crises just really adhere to the calendar. It's uh, the way, the way seasons do for me, you right. know, like January 1st, regardless of what happens with the election or the pandemic or anything like that, things, it's just going to yeah. be better. It's the same way that the coronavirus respects the mask laws in different uh, of regions of states of part course. of the country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway. And, like, and, and mass gatherings like church, no thank you. Coronavirus has no patience for that. <laughs> yeah, you've got, exactly. if you've got political points to make though, or important cultural points, it's got you covered. Don't you worry. Not literally, obviously. Uh, the mask has you covered. That's mm -hmm. what uh, hopefully everyone is covering themselves. Yeah. Smoking. Uh, with a mask. Right? <laughs> <laughs> <Look>. <laughs> somebody's somebody's got to stop me. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, 
So we're gonna count. We're gonna count down our top five movies of the year so far. But first, I want to introduce. Uh, it doesn't really need an introduction. He's on the show every other goddamn week. Uh, it's uh, a Battleship Pretension editor at large, Scott Nye. Hello. How you doing? Oh, you know, hanging in there, just the rest of us. I was uh, I was piddling around on Twitter last night, as one does in these times, with little else to do, Ugh. and came across a, a mask of a different sort. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That I'm very keen to ask St. Louis native David Bax about. Yeah. Which is the mysterious and not at all creepy veiled prophet ball of St. Yeah. Louis. Uh, yeah. So I'm glad. Be some kind of ritual in which a masked elite gentleman of the community picks a bride from amongst many <laughs> potential <laughs> options. It's not actually a bride. Uh, well, but um, it's something equally creepy. It it's a creepy. mistress, actually. The guy's already married. <laughs> so. Um, yeah. So when you brought this or when you, yeah, you, uh, tagged me in a tweet about it and I was like, Oh yeah, because the, and I, I know, I knew very little about growing up. I knew very little about the veiled prophet society of St. Louis or the veiled prophet ball. What I knew was the veiled prophet fair or the VP fair, which is now known as just fair St. Louis, which is their 4th of July celebration every year. Right. Uh, and is accompanied by a parade. The parade used to be attached to the ball, which is in December, but now the parade is attached to the 4th of July uh, um, uh, celebration. So, but to go back to the beginning for uh, way back to the 1870s, um, the Veiled Prophet Society is a sort of secret society of wealthy St. Louis business and industry leaders. And they put on events like the fair. They still, they're still involved in the fair and the parade, but those, the VP fair is now called the fair St. Louis. Uh, and the VP parade is now called the America's birthday parade, which is the lame name. Um, awful. Yeah. Um, uh, but the veiled prophet ball still happens every December. I was surprised to learn. I uh, looked that up. Um, and you should definitely check out, uh, back in 2014, every time like St. Louis is in the news for bad reasons, like with Ferguson, sure, the veiled prophet thing comes up again. So back in 2014, Scott Beecham or Scott Beauchamp, Beauchamp uh, wrote an article for the Atlantic about the history of the veiled prophets. I read that article. It, yes, it's a really good article. I'm looking really, at it now. Uh, really gets into the the labor and class uh, and race history uh, behind the the ball uh, behind the veiled prophet society. Uh, it was sort of uh, founded to defy unions essentially right um but uh the ball itself is uh every december someone from amongst the ranks of the veiled prophet society meaning uh business industry leader we don't know who uh except for in one very exciting case in 1972 where an activist yanked the prophet <laughs> yanked the veil off the prophet uh on stage um we don't and we and it was a, a monsanto uh ceo of some sort or or vice president um, we don't know who the prophet is, but the veiled prophet lords over this ball where the teenage girls of society, I guess there's still a high society in St. Louis, uh, have their, David, as, you know, have their as you know, I recently saw the skulls. So I know, <laughs> I know all about this. Um, the, they have like a coming out and like a, like a debutante ball, but it's a bunch of them at once. And then the veiled prophet picks one of them, one of these teenage girls to be, the queen of love and beauty and dances with her and gives her a gift. Um, 
uh, and Scott, as you also saw, as I saw, I saw on Twitter that you also found out that uh, Ellie Kemper was yes. the 1999 Queen Queen of Love and Beauty. <laughs> um, uh, and yeah, if you read the the names of the Queen of Love, of Love and Beauty, if you know St. Louis, there's names like Schnook and Bush that come up again and again. That are you know th- these are the these are the city fathers. These are the uh, the uh, the big swinging dicks of St. Louis. Um, but uh, the the thing. So I I didn't have much memory of this. But I know that it was tele the Veiled Prophet Ball was televised up until sometime in the late seventies. I I couldn't figure out exactly when it was taken off the air. So I called my mom to see if she had any memory sure. of seeing those. And she was like, What? It was televised? Like she was like, We all knew that was just for rich people. Like we like we didn't care, which is exactly how I to whatever extent I was even aware of the Veiled Prophet Ball as a kid, it was the same thing. Like it's that's not for us. That's for, for other people. But I did find a very, uh, from my mom did give me a very, uh, uh, interesting piece of information, which is that, uh, my dad had a friend who was a professional artist and designer who used to design floats every year for the uh-huh. Veiled Prophet Parade. And one year when I was very little, my sister and I rode on a float in the Veiled Prophet Parade. <laughs> You're more tied to it than you thought. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I do have some tie to the Veiled Prophet Society, but um, uh, that's, uh, I don't know. Do you have any more questions? Because that's about all I can. No, could... I mean, I was disappointed to learn you were so unfamiliar with it. Because as I told you on Twitter, I, I had hoped that this was something that the entire citizenry of St. Louis turned out in the streets for. No. And was on pins and needles <laughs> to see who the Veiled Prophet would pick. Well, as you probably learned from that Atlantic article, it's been rooted in class from the beginning. And so I think, I think my impression is that there's a, among people like, I don't know, I grew up in a nice suburban home in a nice part of the suburbs, but I'm essentially a working class kid, right? you know, son of a mechanic and a nurse, you know? And so I think there is sort of this deeply rooted, like among the working class, like, oh, that's not for us. You know, that's uh, fuck those guys. They're uh, a, a bunch of rich idiots. Yeah, uh, Americans are usually not as good at about just saying fuck the rich. They usually want to be the rich. So I thought they would be turning uh, up, you know, to try yeah. to be a part of their world. Yeah, I'm sure there's uh, I'm David, sure there's some of that. Yeah. David, it sounds to me that rather than the Veiled Prophet Ball, Oil Dorado is more your speed, which is the uh, the celebration in my hometown of Taft, California, <laughs> you told me that, yeah. uh, where uh, I have very little memory of this, but it's it is a ridiculous thing. And it's not every year. I believe it's every every three or four years. I don't know. Every five years. Pardon me. Um, and uh, yeah, there's oh, there's a situation where uh, all men who are able to grow facial hair are required to grow facial hair during oil Dorado. <laughs> and I'm, I, I'm pulling from the Wikipedia page. I don't know how enforced this is anymore. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, if a man does not grow facial hair, he must pay for a permit and wear a bolo tie or a lapel <laughs> pin called a smooth puss badge. Uh, <laughs> if he is, uh, what is it? Uh, if he is caught clean shaven without his badge, he may, May be arrested by the posse. Oh, and I can click on that, but I don't know. I, it might just take me to the definition of posse. Right. Uh, a group of men dressed in Western garb, sporting pistols and rifles filled with blanks, thankfully, and of course, facial hair. Structurally, that sentence, it makes it sound like the rifles are filled with facial <laughs> yeah, hair. <it> <laughs> um, uh, 
the man will be placed in a jail truck called the Hooskow and driven around town for an hour for all to see. Uh, warrants may also be purchased to have somebody else arrested and placed in the Hooskow. I don't remember much of this, uh, but I do remember uh, Oil Dorado being a big thing. I feel like that's more your speed david yeah that's uh, that sounds fun the only people paraded through town are guys with smooth pusses <laughs> but who don't have the puss badge or their yeah. customary bolo tie right <laughs> uh, uh, scott do you have uh, any i mean you're you're from i forget are you from boston originally or from you're portland. from you're from portland okay but you went to school uh I went to college in boston yeah that's right that's right um well, of course, I'm sure Portland has all kinds of uh, delightful and uh, strange ceremonies and, and events. Not any ceremonies that I can recall, just like weird bits of histories. I mean, the thing I always point to because it's the most absurd is that we have the smallest park in the country. It's oh. just like a small square of grass that somebody just declared was a park and then eventually became a city park and was so declared that they shut down the street and used a full-size crane to place a tiny miniature Ferris wheel on the property the day they declared it was to be an official park. Uh, and it main remains the uh, smallest official park in the U.S. I'm looking it up right now. I'm glad people are keeping Portland weird. Um, oh, yeah, there it is. That's uh, adorable. We'll get in, uh, let's get into the topic of the episode. But first, I, I want to go back to the Veiled Profit Ball. I, was, I came up with this theory. I was talking to my wife about the Veiled Profit Ball today because I was reading so much about it. And I came up with this theory that uh, and maybe this sounds crazy to people now because Chicago is such a big uh, city, but in the late 19, late 1800s, early 1900s, there really was a competition between St. Louis and Chicago as to which city was the bigger city, which city was America's sort of jewel of the Midwest type of city. And sure. sh Chicago clearly won that. And I think that, psychologically St. Louis has never been okay since then. <laughs> I, I, I think there's, I think it kind of drove a lot of us crazy. St. Louis is now uh, it's it over a hundred years after the fact, it's still like subconscious identity is a failed big city. That yeah, I think that some of that isn't true of Portland as well. Cause uh, for a while it was just all Seattle on the West coast and Portland was seen as like uh, Seattle's, uh, you know, ugly stepchild or whatever. Like we're just the cast off. We don't, nobody cares about us. So I think that was what bred so much weirdness in Portland mm. is like, well, we can get away with anything. Nobody cares about us now. Yeah. Now, but, uh, yeah. St. Louis and still want you to think of them. That's there's a, there's a thing that uh, you'll find that St. Louisans when they go leave St. Louis will rarely describe themselves as being from Missouri. They're not from Missouri. They're from sure. St. Louis. That makes sense. Uh, because, because I think St. Louis and still have this thing like we could, we were so close to being <laughs> Chicago and we're not. Now, I've told this on here before, but it's always fun for me to talk about. Uh, many years ago, I was watching a VHS tape of a show called Biker Mice from Mars and uh which was just one of many uh ripoffs of teenage mutant ninja yeah. turtles who are just like okay we need a nice long title um but anyway uh it, it became so clear that this show originated in some capacity in chicago because aliens come to conquer earth where do they start well obviously chicago because <laughs> and and the uh, and the um 
the 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 evil, the, the, the main evil, uh, emperor or whatever, uh, he, when regarding Chicago, he goes, ah, Chicago, jewel of the Midwest. <laughs> I remember thinking like, okay, so this is paid for by like the board of tourism or something like yeah, that. Chicago, right? This? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So anyway, Oh man, I okay. love, we'll move on. I, um, recently finished watching bojack horseman i don't know if you guys have seen it all the way through but uh a character moves to chicago in the final season and there are so many great like taking the piss out of chicago like mm. everything that they eat is i'm gonna get some more chicago style french fries like everything is chicago <laughs> style uh and then also there's a joke where she calls she calls mr peanut butter mr peanut butter is like oh are you a, are you a chicagoan now you know i went to school in chicago and she goes you went to school in northwestern that's not in chicago and he goes you are a chicagoan <laughs> <laughs> uh, i maybe miss chicago but that's not what we're here to talk about let's get into it shall we we're going to talk about our top five movies of the year so far and because uh my last name starts with a b and no one's last name starts with an a i get to go first um uh, and so that means I get to start by laying out my, uh, r- luckily there have been enough officially released movies and by, uh, not necessarily in theater. Some of them released digitally. That's fine with me. Um, uh, that are actually 2020 premiering movies that I didn't have to make an exception to my usual strict rule, but it does mean that there are some things that seem like they should be obvious that aren't on my list like the vast of night is not making my list because that's a 2019 uh movie but that absolutely would be on there uh, uh anyway um so uh just to, just wanted to lay that out so i will start with my number five movie excuse me of the first half of 2020 and uh i believe it's my only documentary on the list it's one I saw back at Sundance and it's Lana Wilson's Miss Americana, which is the documentary about Taylor Swift. Specifically it's storyline uh, is about Taylor Swift's decision to become a politically outspoken uh, artist and celebrity. But often what I like about uh, documentaries about individuals um, are the things that they reveal other than uh, uh, what they seem to be about. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. uh, I'm reminded of another Netflix documentary from a few years ago. That I think it was just called Amanda Knox. It was about Amanda Knox. Um, which is a, it's sort of a true crime thing about the, uh, she was, I don't know if you guys remember Amanda Knox. She was the woman who was, uh, uh, American woman who lives in Italy and was accused of murdering her roommate. Uh, yes, and, that's and right. Actually went to jail for a little bit in Italy and then was, was cleared. And the movie on its own is a good, that a good true crime story, but it's really about this strange woman who, even though the, all the evidence says she didn't do it, seems like the type of person that might murder her roommate. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So I I didn't mean to turn this into an endorsement of uh, Netflix's Amanda Knox documentary, but it's worth, it's worth watching. Um, But Miss Americana, uh, I I think I, I, while I like this, um, the, the plot line that it has. And I like the way that we uh, see sort of um, generationally um, what, what it means for an artist to be outspoken or more specifically what it means for an artist of Taylor Swift generation to stay quiet, I think is more what the movie uh, is about. That's, that's very interesting uh, stuff, but what it ended up also accidentally being is 
for anyone who's still too cool to admit that Taylor Swift is great or is a skeptic of Taylor, Taylor Swift, it's undeniable evidence of her talents as a songwriter. There are multiple scenes of her in the studio just creating that are among the best depictions of the creation of art that I've ever seen. It's astounding how quickly she can come up with the right lyric and the look on her face when she realizes that she's found the right lyric. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And it's Miss Americana is in that way, kind of uh, an argument for how uh, special uh, art is and how, how uh, talent should be uh, cherished and celebrated. A quick question so, about this yeah. movie. Okay. Uh, what period of time does it cover? Because my impression as someone who is not a Swifty uh, is that she only became like this politically outspoken artist after this film premiered. Did she become it beforehand and I just missed it? Uh, it no, yeah, she, she became, it was the, um, the 2018 uh, midterms was when she started speaking right. out. She okay. started endorsing particular candidates. Okay. So um, it's really, uh, the in terms of the, the time period, it's really, the period of time that she is um, writing and recording lover, the album that came out in 2019 um, gotcha. that that's really the, the, the time period it covers, but there's a lot of uh, older footage, uh, some very emotional older stuff. Like uh, there's, there's a home home video uh, Christmas footage of very young Taylor Swift getting her first guitar as a Christmas present. Uh, that it, That is, yeah, it's very like I, I got kind of emotional. I saw it at Sundance and in festivals, you tend to be on like little sleep and you're seeing movies. I think I saw this movie like eight 30 in the morning and I tend to be a little bit more emotional. So I remember, I remember welling up at multiple points in this movie, but that might've just been because I was in, a, in an emotionally vulnerable uh, state, but uh, yeah, terrific movie worth watching. Oh, I would have been exactly the opposite, which is anything I saw at 830 in the morning, it's like, oh, God help you. I could see my favorite movie of the year and be like, it's not that great. <laughs> okay, so uh, alphabetically, I think Scott is next. Yeah, uh, my number five is uh, Lisa Barros de Sa and Glenn Laburn's Ordinary Love. Um, stars Liam Neeson and Leslie Manville as a married couple uh, who... This is a very short movie. It's like 90 minutes long. Uh, very soon in the movie, Leslie Manville discovers that she has breast cancer. And the movie just takes place over the course of this year of them uh, both together and apart, dealing with that, dealing with the individual steps involved in that, and reconciling that this might be a temporary thing. It might be a horrific year they go through, or it might be the end of everything for them. Um and it's just as kind of harrowing as that premise promises without, I think, kind of overdoing it. Uh, they, ha they have this very, this established at the beginning, this very kind of light, friendly, uh, slightly combative relationship that's just kind of very much, I think, what a lot of couples get to be like when they're older, um, where they're not, you know, they've gone past the stage of vulnerabilities and are just kind of at a point of accepting one another and can lightly tease each other without like devastating the other person. Uh, so most of their conversations are kind of combative. So when they have to confront this very life altering event, they don't really have the tools, the emotional tools at the ready in order to come together on that. And so a lot of the grieving they do is apart and the way in which they eventually come together 
is at once unexpected. I don't want to spoil anything, but I think it was unexpected, especially for a film about an older couple and very, very touching. Um, yeah, I was just deeply moved by the film throughout. I hadn't heard of uh, the director, uh, Lisa Burst. Uh, I think Glenn Laburn is either her husband or her, I don't think they've made films together in the past, but I hadn't heard of her before. Uh, and I'm so glad that I just kind of randomly took this press screening because I absolutely loved the film. That's all I got to say. All right. All right. Next for me is a film that I actually mentioned in the most recent movie journal. So I don't want to, I don't want to belabor it too much, uh, which is Spike Lee's The uh, Defied Bloods, um, which as I said, is actually not uh, in my view, like a, a perfect film. I think it's a little bit scattershot and a little bit messy, but in a way that I really like um, that is that that's, that's the kind of Spike Lee that I, that I enjoy. Mm -hmm. uh, Inside Man is all well and good, uh, but it's a little bit too organized for my taste. Uh, I like, shot, I like uh, a shotgun blast of a movie sometimes, and that is very much what Defy Bloods is. Um, it is relevant very much to the conversations that are being had today while still, you know, when, he's, when he is on the mark, like he manages to make something that is relevant in the, in the uh, macro sense while also being very specific to these characters approaching them as yes representative of something but still very much themselves and I really appreciate that about uh, Defy Bloods and I think it's very there are scenes that that have uh, I've, I saw it a few weeks ago there are scenes that have really stayed with me scenes of of unity and scenes of you know characters in fighting and getting very frustrated with each other. And then suddenly something comes up that, uh, or they, they discover something that brings them all back together. And they realize that what they have in common is so much deeper than the things that uh, divide them. And so uh, it really is a, a special movie. I'll be a one that maybe is, this is going to sound strange. This isn't something I say very lightly, but like, it might go on a little bit too long at times. And it's, I think it's probably a little bit self-indulgent, but I don't mind that when the, when the passion is there and some really solid craftsmanship and some wonderful acting. I already, I already spent several minutes in the movie journal praising the work of Delroy mm -hmm. Lindo. The whole cast is great, but, uh, but Del Delroy Lindo especially is, is solid, but, while I think that his performance is worth the, the two and a half hours alone, the rest of the film, thankfully, uh, comes around that. And, and I think uh, on top of everything else, it is a film about bitterness and resentment and holding grudges uh, and maybe even grudges against oneself and the, the liberation that comes from forgiveness. Uh, it really is just a fascinating movie and one that, that I think is extremely relevant to what people are talking about today. And uh, given what I was talking about in regards to forgiveness, there, there might be some people that watch the film and say, no, this is not hard hitting enough. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, it's uh, I, I, I I really respect Spike Lee as, as a filmmaker and just making movies that feel right for, to him. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed The Five Bloods. Yeah, that fell just outside my top five. Um, and speaking to the scattershot thing, like Spike Lee's 
thought process can sometimes be difficult to trace, um, yeah. but it's so electric and alive. And I love that he makes the connections he make, even if like they're never connections I would make in terms of like yeah. historical incidents or precedents or like ways things lead to one another. It's like that in a sense, it all kind of adds up, but it's what makes him so brilliant is the fact that he can relate all these things together. And I, could, I, I could see somebody looking at a movie like Defy Bloods or, or even Black Klansman or whatever um, and just saying like, well, you know, we suddenly jump into like documentary footage or we jump into this or now characters are looking at the camera, whatever it is, uh, stuff that doesn't fit with what it would be considered like consistent mainstream filmmaking, but it's something that f it feels right for him. And then he sells it so that it feels right for the film. And so that's what I mean when I say like, it could be seen as very messy, but it all, but given the subject matter and just the way people are sometimes messy is much more correct sure. than something clean and consistent. Yeah. I feel like terms like, messy and overstuffed and self-indulgent are generally used as pejoratives maybe more than they should be but if there's any director for whom that sounds like a recommendation it's going to be <laughs> oh, yeah. likely for me yeah uh all right on to my number four which is um osgood perkins gretel and hansel a uh a uh, uh, horror movie that came out uh, in theaters in february i think um that is uh, i uh, i know uh, among certain people osgood perkins is already uh, uh a bit of a star in sort of certain like art horror circles for things like uh what's and i can't remember it's like the pretty I, thing the black that lives coats. in the house the black coast daughter and yeah. i am the pretty thing that lives yeah. in the house yeah. yeah both movies that i didn't see uh but now i want to because uh gretel and hansel is uh um unceasingly strange but immersive uh uh, aesthetic and visual uh, experience terrific score by the way by a guy who just goes by rob that's how he's credited <laughs> <laughs> um he also did the score for the movie revenge that uh coralie Fargier uh um uh, movie from a couple of years ago um so uh terrific score um the movie is sort of uh did either of you see gretel and hansel i did um okay so the movie is uh, uh again, things that sound like a pejorative, it's kind of static in a lot of ways. Like it kind of settles on a tone and stays there. I feel like there's, but I also feel like that makes even the slightest upping of stakes or tension or emotionality uh, seem bigger, you know, more uh, impact, impactful, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Um, it's a, uh, I, I think it's timed just right at under 90 minutes. Um, uh, and there's not a single moment in the movie that feels uh, less than uh, considered, maybe even worried over, uh, but in a way that I, uh, that I, that I responded to, I found it to be um, uh, a very transportive otherworldly movie. Uh, Scott, you saw it. What did you think? Oh, yeah. I, the only other thing I wanted to say about it is that it has a way of making its CG effects seem kind of handmade. And I can't really mm -hmm. put my finger on like what 
certain technique when involved in that. It's just that when I watch it, I got the same feeling of it that I get from like watching stop motion or mm-hmm. uh, time flap sequences or whatever older methods used to be used for what we use CGI for now. Uh, it kind of still had that feeling, which worked in tandem with the production design, which is so elegantly crafted and yeah. so strange and often grotesque. Um, it never really felt like there was just a CGI layer laid on top of it, which I feel like happens a lot with horror, especially. And I should say, I think one of the performances of the year so far is Alice Creek as the, the witch. Sure. Um, I'm the new Alice Creek from, uh, she's in the second season of Deadwood. She's the, um, when, when Joni Stubbs opens her own brothel oh. in Deadwood, the other madam that she brings, uh, oh, yeah. is Alice Creek. That's the only thing I really knew her from, but she's, it's a great performance in, in Girl in, in the Hansel. And, uh, Sophia, the girl from it is, uh, Gretel. She's, she's really good mm. too. Um, and, uh, Hansel's just a little kid. He's a cute, normally they're portrayed as being like, pretty yeah, like close in age. age yeah but uh she's considerably older uh and he's just a little moppet uh, and he's got some cute lines i was hoping you'd say moppet i'm very excited <laughs> by that it was also uh, it was shot in some weird aspect ratio too it was like one five five or something uh yeah i think that's right actually yeah one five so it's a very five. strange looking movie yeah yeah i really liked it uh all right scott number four for you yeah my number four is a georgian film called and then we danced um it's about i'm probably a little loose on the plot because this is one i saw a while ago but um it's about a young man who's a ballet dancer uh very determined to sorry a belly dancer a ballet dancer oh a ballet dancer (laughs) no um a very determined to make it in i guess the georgian ballet in this very uh very captivating to watch kind of georgian dance style um and very single-minded pursuit uh one day another young man joins the dance troupe and is kind of in every way better than him, even though he's less experienced, has kind of less claim over the form than our protagonist does. Uh, And so a lot of jealousy sets in right away. Where's this guy come from? What's he doing? Taking my spot in the troupe. Um, And then with that, a little bit of attraction comes into play. Uh, And if you know anything about Georgian politics, you'll probably be aware that uh, homosexuality is not uh, terribly condoned there to the extent that the film was... Uh, I don't know about if it's outright banned. At least there were attempts to, and there were huge protests around showing it. Um, but the film very much wrestles not only with the uh, societal impact of this guy's attractions, the fact that his career as a ballet dancer could be at risk if he pursues this, but also kind of the personal self-loathing that comes into play when you've grown up in a society that uh, so condemns a certain type of sexuality. Uh, and... I love these kind of films that kind of draw in jealousy, ambition, and attraction all in together. And this does it really, really well um, in terms of, like I said, not only kind of his internal struggles, but how that gets externalized in his dance, um, how he pushes himself too far, how he tries to get away with it in front of his girlfriend, how his girlfriend kind of sees through that and uh, is, you know, so often in the American version of the story, there's a moment where she tearfully goes like, go, find him uh but here you know she's in the same kind of repressed society he is so she like outright hates him for this uh so the obstacles and the struggles that everyone is is facing are so much more heightened than the premise would necessarily suggest uh and the director really just tackles it all exceptionally well uh yeah and then we danced i really really liked i don't know what it's availability these days to have a brief theatrical run 
um, but everything is kind of in limbo right now. So if it does pop up on VOD, I highly recommend people check it out. Okay. All right. My number four. Now, David, as, as everyone uh, knows, like a lot, you and I don't do not adhere to the same rules. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm no one Ameri- adheres to the, my rules are That's true. Crazy. No yeah. one should have to adhere to my rules. They're way too strict. Yes. Uh, and uh, thankfully I didn't because otherwise my, uh, my list of 2020 films would be very, very short. Um, but uh, yeah, so this is a, a film that was released in, I think, Australia last year, but it uh, was released in the U.S. here. And it is Mira Folk's Judy and Punch, uh, which is, again, a film that is just so odd and it just does not adhere to just to just basic rules of tone and and story and character uh in many ways it's very straightforward but in other ways the choices that are made are delightfully ridiculous and it is about you know um the characters punch and judy who had this very successful pu- uh, puppet show um punch is played by damon harriman of uh once upon a time in hollywood and uh wonderfully in mindhunter um and then uh, judy is paid played by uh, mia vashikowska and uh, they have a, a son together, but Punch has a drinking problem and it eventually leads to a violent uh, confrontation between the two of them. And uh, Judy is uh, uh, left for dead, essentially. Speaking of left for dead, sorry about that. I don't know if you can hear the uh, explosions outside my, my window, yeah. but um, so so there's a re- there's a revenge quality but like within all of this it's it's sort of a medieval film and so judy falls in with like uh, a a bunch of people that have been uh deemed witches by society and uh meanwhile punch uh continues to gain uh acceptance and popularity and all that so uh it has these parallel stories and punch is our villain or rather our antagonist uh and we don't really sympathize with him but the film does spend a lot of time with him which i appreciate and everything the the hysteria around witches is something that he is able to play into because there's a showmanship quality to him and to the world in which he lives and the the film features i won't say it's ravenous-esque music but it's this Mm. very intense a a sort of almost like over the top level of portent uh, in, in the music. And yet all of this is also very funny and, and ridiculous. Uh, There comes a moment where a character is, is delivering a monologue to the, to the city and then just starts quoting gladiator. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. And so uh, it's, and, and the film knows, like, it's a well-known gladiator quote. The film knows that we're going to recognize it. And it doesn't, it just does it. And then just moves on. And again, it's just like, I like that. I, I appreciate the film's level of just doing like, oh, we're going to, I'm just going to make this movie and we're going to move on and everything will be a lot of fun. Uh, Mira, uh, Mira folks, it is, she's uh, is an actress. I believe this is her directorial debut. And it's, it's got that kind of, of boldness and self-assuredness that, that can sometimes come from a first or a second time filmmaker. I, I really love it. 
so the the circumstances are too perfect for me to not resurrect this joke I made months ago. But Gretel and Hansel, Judy and Punch. Yeah. What's next? Isolda and Tristan. <laughs> All right. Is that what's next? Uh, yeah, I no, think so. Not, uh, oh. not for me. Next for oh, me. Right. Uh, my number three film of 2020 so far. The last film I went to see in a theater on Monday, March 9th, not counting the press screening of My Spy. Uh, the last <laughs> time I actually went to voluntarily see in a theater is Autumn DeWilde's Emma. I had to put a pause there because there's a period at the end of the sentence or at the end of the, the title. Um, uh, yeah, this is a movie I was uh, very excited about beforehand and uh, um, really, uh, uh, I guess, lived up to my my expectations. I think uh, it's because I had seen, I try to, I largely try to avoid movie trailers, but I had seen, I remember seeing the trailer for Emma, I think before Little Women back in December, the time's out, right? Uh, probably. Um, and uh, the the trailer for Emma is very funny. And so I was excited to see this kind of like uh cheeky heightened take on um it's Jane Austen, right? Is that yeah. right? Okay. Uh, on on Jane Austen. Um and I think wisely the movie starts very much like the trailer. It it does seem uh very very heightened. Uh you've got um uh, Bill Nighy kind of hilariously hamming it up. Um, and the other actor who plays the, I can't think of his name, who plays the, uh, the, the priest or, or the chaplain or whatever, Joshua Connor is his name is also very larger than life. The movie's very funny, but then it like, not even, I was going to say gradually, but pretty quickly after that, it actually settles into just being a more straight faced, respectful adaptation um, and so I think that I, I, I'm not sure what that first section is maybe there to just like, uh, throw you off of what you expect from a Jane Austen adaptation so that your mind's open and then you can reapproach it, uh, um, taking things, uh, seeing things for, for what they are. And I think, uh, Autumn DeWild does a great uh, job as, as director. There's a lot of, um, uh, great use of, uh, of of space with these with these big rooms and uh with large groups of people you know uh cutting around large groups of people picnicking outside and stuff like that the direction's good but really the thing that comes back to me uh is is performance and uh Anya Taylor Joy is uh has quickly become an actress that I uh really like and her performance as as Emma um is uh startlingly uh um sharp and and aware and she plays the sort of cusp of adulthood very well but sometimes she can be still a girl and can uh speak without thinking or act without thinking um but sometimes she can also be um a, a more mature adult who has earned empathy over the course of her life and um, can understand how her, her actions uh, affect, affect people. Um, uh, I, I, I thought for, for uh, a story that has been, I guess the story of Emma is the basis of clueless. And so it becomes a thing like, 
like with certain like Shakespeare things or whatever, where we just understand here are the main characters and plot points. It's just like a sort of boilerplate that other things are built on. Autumn de Wilde kind of went back to the text in a way and said, uh, no, this isn't just a bunch of uh, archetypes. This hasn't like congealed into uh, uh, something that we all can just look at once and understand. There's a full story here and there are characters here and the, this, the, there are still new things to mine uh, from, from this, uh, from the story. Uh, yeah. Uh, terrifically well, well acted by, uh, I mentioned Bill Nighy and Anya Taylor-Joy. Uh, also uh, Johnny Flynn and Mia Goth uh, are, are both very good in the movie. I like Mia Goth a lot. I like that Johnny Flynn a lot. Yeah, you saw it too, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. And the only other thing I wanted to mention with it is uh, it does the great thing I always like in modern period pieces where it shows somebody getting dressed into that like super restrictive gear and you're like, holy shit, yeah. that is impossible <laughs> to get ready every day. It's a good thing they had nothing to do. Yeah. Uh, I for, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention one of the other best performances in the movie, which is Miranda Hart um, as oh, Miss Bates. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Most devastating film scene of the year, I'd say that. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I still like, it, it, do you ever like, it, there are things I don't want to go into details, but there are things that I've done in my past that I've realized, like I've hurt someone's feelings by being stupid or thoughtless oh, or saying something. Absolutely. And everyone, and like they will just occur to me again every once in a while. And I will just like cringe and like, blush and like feel terrible about myself again and yeah that the scene you're referring to with miranda hart i have uh, a few times over the past month occasionally thought of it again and just felt bad for her all over again yeah yeah, yeah. all right uh scott uh my number three which i suspect might come up again so stop me if it does uh the invisible man uh yeah we'll get there okay then move along all right uh, my number three is Dan Scanlon's Onward, um, a film that a lot of people have said uh, is is like minor Pixar, uh, and I disagree. I think uh, it is in the tradition of like some of the best Pixar movies out there. Uh, I do recognize that there, and you know what, in the in that Pixar tradition, there is like your main plot, but then there's like this sort of a sub theme of like, this is a magical world that has uh, settled for like modern technology. Uh, but then as our main characters go on this quest that has nothing to do with that, uh, more and more of the characters that they encounter uh, are start to embrace their magical nature. Uh, and so it's the, the world building aspect of it could actually be seen as a little bit, not necessarily distracting, but a lot of time is spent on that, especially in the beginning. Um, but to me, I, I didn't necessarily, it didn't necessarily bother me. Instead, I just really embraced the whole vision of what Dan Scanlon was doing. And I really responded to, the story that is being told. It is a very grown up story, one that I think uh, younger audiences probably could appreciate, but certainly older people like myself can, can really value. Um, you know, it's a, in its own way, it's a dead father movie. So obviously it's going to speak to me in that way. Um, but it also gets to this idea of 
you know, when you define, it's, it's so easy to define yourself by loss and by pain and tragedy and to try to fill that void with something or try to regain something, the thing that you've lost. And in doing so, it is entirely possible to, to not actively ignore, but just not see what is in front of you and the, and the people that are alongside you or just the circumstances that you're in that are so that can be fulfilling if you let them be. And I really, and the way that that, uh, the way that the film engages in that is winds up being in its own way, kind of a, a twist and one that instinctively because you're so on board with the main character and so on board with his goals instinctively you're like no what you you don't realize what you're giving up uh but at the same time the film has has really laid the groundwork for that to be emotionally and thematically um fulfilling uh all of that underneath some really interesting visuals some really uh, exciting and, and thrilling uh, set pieces and and some very solid voice work uh, by Tom Holland and Chris Pratt, uh, Mel Rodriguez, who's always wonderful. Wow. Um, I, I really uh, responded to it on on a number of levels. And I feel like I do think that a lot of people probably relegate it to, again, like minor Pixar, maybe just because it's newer and that tends to be uh, what they do. But I, I feel like it's, it's right up there with, with something like, uh, you know, a, a Wally or a Finding Nemo or something like that. So uh, I, I highly recommend it. If, if somebody, I believe it's on Disney plus, if somebody has Disney plus uh, check it out, it's worth it. Oh, around to me again already. Yes. We, oh, that's right. We I'm skipped. sorry. Did you want me to go on? No, <laughs> that's okay. Okay. Uh, so um, I don't know if someone else has this one later, but my number two film of 2020 so far is Josephine Decker's Shirley. No, nope. well, I was a little disappointed in it. Um, I'm, uh, I'm sad to hear that. Um, uh, although it's weird. Um, I'll get into the movie in a second, but uh I, um, never mind. Yeah, I was gonna say something. It's not uh, say something about that wasn't about the movie, but about my experience at Sundance. But I'll I'll uh, save it for another time. Not a negative thing about Sundance. Uh, I would never say anything negative about Sundance. No, there's nothing bad to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's no, a little uh, chilly, right? Uh, but I like that. I like yeah. that part of it. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, it's. Surely it's a, it's a, it surely is about Shirley Jackson writing one of her novels, but it's a fictionalized account of a, you know, a, a real person writing a novel that became a real novel. I forget the name of the one that it's about, but, um, hangs a man, uh, uh hangs a man. Yeah. Okay. Um, and Shirley Jackson is known, uh, as a horror writer. And I feel like Josephine Decker took, cues from that in making Shirley, which feels like, um, and I feel guilty about making this comparison because it's like unwoke or whatever, but it feels like a Roman Polanski movie in a lot of ways. Uh, it's very, um, uh, in internalized psychological horror. There's, there's, uh, a, a lot of sweaty close-ups, 
Um, uh, that's kind of how I would describe most of the movie is sweaty close-ups. Um, uh, and, uh, I think that's the trend. That's like the German translation of the film, right? Like that's the title there. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, I, I should have, uh, uh, thought of more, <laughs> to, to say about it, but, um, it, it it did stick with me. It did work with me uh, more than uh, it did for Scott, I guess. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I wish I, I'm suddenly like uh, uh, the cat's got my tongue on, on certain things. I think, I think I got in my head deciding whether or not to say that other thing. And uh, well, Elizabeth Moss is very good in it. Uh, I like the way uh, both her conception of the character and kind of the way her character is designed like so many period pieces feel like they're just dressed for the period. Elizabeth Moss in the movie looks like those old photographs you see of people in the period where it's like, they got like halfway to the point where you're supposed to be like fully dressed and like prim and proper for the fifties or whenever it's set. And then there's like, I don't have the effort to go all the way, you know? So her hair is always a little messy. Her glasses are a little crooked. Um, she, her character feels very lived in, which I did not feel was the case for the rest of the movie. Um, that's too bad. So you didn't like Odessa Young's performance either then? Uh, her uh, performance was good. I feel like the conception of the character was a little thin. Um, and just on the whole, the screenplay was just very thin and has too many scenes that start and stop too quickly. It doesn't feel like that kind of descent into madness that Josephine Decker's, the three other Josephine Decker films I've seen have. Um, it doesn't have like this you know a lot of comparisons have been made to who's for virginia wolf because it has a similar thing of this young couple being brought in by this very dysfunctional older couple um and them kind of being driven mad by each other but it doesn't have that sense of like cascading into nothingness it feels very kind of herky-jerky and starts off i wasn't surprised to find that it was the screen artist for a screenplay it just feels too like every scene has a definitive point without adding up to an entire portrait uh, I, I, I see, I see what you're saying. Um, uh, or, I mean, I, I don't agree with it, but right. <laughs> I, I see what you're saying. Um, uh, I, I, I found that yes, Elizabeth Moss is, Moss is great. And so is, I thought Odessa Young was great too. And I find, I mean, we're not even talking about the fact that Logan Lerman and Michael Schulberg are, are both in the movie. And also I think both, uh, very good and have substantial parts in the movie, but, um, the, the the heart of the movie is the sometimes adversarial and sometimes conspiratorial relationship between Shirley and Odessa Young's character. And, um, I guess the, uh, the, um, the angst ridden goth adjacent teen in me, uh, liked the way that the movie, um, seems to be obsessed with or at least the characters may be obsessed with mortality obsessed with their own uh deaths odessa young's character i think is uh uh i, I think there, there's a there's a history of not just movies but all fiction and and, and literature of uh romanticizing would be glorifying the death of young women and um I think the the movie uh, kind of shows what it's like to, or, or at least attempts to to come close to what it's like to be a young woman in 
uh, a society that sees uh, mortality in a kind of sees their own death in a kind of uh, 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 glorified way. Sure. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting I'm getting far uh, afield and not making my point uh, very well. But this always happens. There's always at least one movie whenever I do it. We do a countdown that I'm like, fuck. I should have. I, I should have like rewatched it or something before. Like I have. No, I know the feeling. I I, I can't remember what year marjorie prime came out but i put it on my top 10 of the year but i still to this day think i didn't make a good case on that top 10 episode for why it should be a top 10 movie it always year. yeah it hap- always happens with one yeah like when i talked about thoroughbreds it's like oh i could have done better <laughs> uh you know and i've got that wit of the staircase thing where now it's like well if we were talking marjorie prime right now sure. i'd make a great case <laughs> <laughs> now i know what i want to say all right uh scott you're up next with your number two yeah my number two is uh andrew on's uh driveways yes which didn't qualify for me because it's oh, a 2019 sure, sure. but oh, I, I loved it yeah it's so good uh so it's about a young mother played by hong chow uh who travels i would imagine for the first time to her sister's house with her uh young boy um, her sister has recently passed away. We come to understand that they weren't terribly close. They, uh, you know, I think the sister was a good deal older, so they didn't essentially grow up together, but they still had that kind of familial tie. The sister's passed away, so she goes to hopefully clean up and sell the house, you know, make a decent profit. She's kind of uh, well-employed, but not gainfully employed as a medical transcriptionist, wants to be a nurse, but uh, definitely struggling for money. And enough that when she gets to the house and discovers that it is that her sister very much struggled with hoarding and the house is unlivable, uh, she has to go stay at a hotel, which we quickly understand is a pretty major sacrifice for her uh, to fork over the money for a cheap motel in whatever town they've landed in. I, does the film even specify? I don't, I don't think, think so. it does. Yeah. Um, we understand she comes from like what Wisconsin or something. So it's some okay. ways away from there. Okay. Um, anyway, that doesn't really matter. But uh, so um the but the house could still you know make her some money so she goes through the process of cleaning it out and it kind of does a familiar thing of becoming a window into her sister's life that she had no conception of and while she's cleaning this house out she kind of has to send her son off to do whatever you know he's kind of too young to really help in any meaningful way um so she ends up letting or forcing him to kind of hang out with neighbors. Uh, this brought back a lot of flashbacks to my own childhood of being shoved off on various neighbors. who I didn't like, <laughs> didn't understand and was kind of sitting in their house for a few hours a day. Um, but the boy ends up strangely befriending uh, their next door neighbor, who is an older Korean vet played by Brian Dennehy. Um, and Korean whatever, war vet. He's a white man. Sorry. That's He's not a Korean veteran. Specifying. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, Korean war veteran uh, played by Brian Dennehy. Um, and the two of them just kind of hit it off. Uh, he's a widower and doesn't really have a lot going on other than his weekly bingo night, which he can't even drive himself to. Um, so he's very kind of shut up in the house, just kind of watches the neighborhood go by. Um, but they become something that the other needs at this point. Um, sense of company and companionship that uh, can extend beyond the limited world to which they're supposed to exist. You know, this kid's supposed to be going out and play with the kids, but he doesn't really get along with the kids he's shoved off on. Uh, the older guy gets along with the guys he hangs out with, but he only sees them, you know, once a week to shoot the shit over bingo. It doesn't seem like he has really deep relationships with them. Um, 
but the kid becomes a way in which uh, Brian Denny can kind of uh, pat, impart something to the future. He has a daughter that he doesn't really understand or get along with. And we sense that there's a lot in the past between them that is difficult for either of them to overcome. And the nature of their relationship is by definition and becomes increasingly in different ways, transitory, you know, the goal from the start is to sell the house. So whatever relationship they build is designed within the film to be temporary. But of course, both of them become more attached than that. And when they're reminded of its temporary status, uh, it kind of comes crashing down in a surprising way, building to really one of the most breathtaking endings I've seen all year, um, in part because like the characters, you don't expect it to end kind of as soon as it does. Mm. Um, it's really, really touching. I, I completely loved it. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, you've got the, the kid's great. Hong Chao is always great. Brian Denny's always great. You've also got um, Jerry Adler is one of uh, his uh, bingo friends. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, the mom of the neighbor kids is, um, is it Christine Ebersole? Is that her name? Let's see. I have a page up. Uh, yep. That's her. Yeah, that's a that's a terrific little performance too. The the movie is uh very uh uh what's the word I'm looking for? Um it's shaded uh, perfectly, very, very well uh uh observed, I think, yeah. in in even small uh moments and, and with characters like like Christine Ebersol's character who is kind of a joke but is also real. Uh, like yeah. I mean, well, you said first... that you you could you can you have memories of going to the yeah. neighbor's houses. Like I totally do too. And she seems like the mom of the kid you don't like. Yeah, totally. Well, at first she seems very sweet and genuine, and you're like, this seems like a decent person in the neighborhood. But she just kind of slowly unravels to be like completely clueless. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just I I feel like we're kind of starved in some ways for these films that are very kind of authentic portraits of kind of people who are working class but aren't overly burdened by that just kind of going through everyday struggles and this draws out a lot of emotion from i think something people go through all the time yeah it's really good did you did you see spawn night his first film no i didn't but now i really yeah. want to i wanted yeah. to at the time i just kind of missed it but yeah very good all right number two for tyler all right uh it is in fact scott's number three which is uh lee wanels wanels i don't remember how you say his last name uh the invisible man which uh man what a like i was excited to see it and uh, but i did not expect it to be as just fully beautifully realized as it is. Uh, it's, it's a great example of something that David, you and I have said many times before, which is like, if you want to make a movie that has, uh, you know, I mean, uh, on one hand, you've got something like Defy Bloods, a film that has a message and is, and is trying to be relevant to conversations happening today. And that's a very, you know, uh, he's casting a, a, a wide net. Uh, whereas something like The Invisible Man, because it's a genre movie, it's like you, the best way to make your comment about society is to first do justice to the genre. And with The Invisible Man, the scarier it is, the more tense it is, the more... Uh, you know, if, if Defy Bloods is a shotgun, like the Invisible Man is a is a scalpel, like it is a sniper rifle to go with the gun thing. Um, it is so specific, so focused, and the more focused it is, the more effective it is on a thematic standpoint. Uh, and 
you know, Elizabeth Moss, obviously well represented on the list already, uh, has to carry this movie. The rest of the cast is very good, but like her level of fear, determination, the questioning of herself, because there is that the gaslighting concept there. Uh, it all works so well. Um, it, it is it's wonderfully structured. It is wonderfully photographed as well, because obviously when you're dealing with an invisible man, because I think this is a, a movie that looks at its concept and says, okay, what, let's look at it from every possible angle and get what we can out of it. And one of the big things is you're dealing with absence, but is it actual absence? And so you'll have shots where nothing's in the frame or, or the most important thing in the movie is in the frame. You don't, you never quite know, but either way, the camera will linger because even if it's not there, it could be. And so whether it be the, the soundtrack, the way it's shot, the way it's acted, the way it's structured, it is so damn near perfect in every way. It works as a genre film. It works as a character study and it works in the larger uh, cultural conversation about the way relationships work. And in this, and in this case, and mostly in, in what people have been talking about, it's like the way a woman is, is treated, but this idea of being so possessive of another person that even when the relationship is over in this case, in a very extreme way, even when the relationship is over, that person still has a hold on you. And this idea of love being a possessive thing and feeling like, well, I love you. And thus that entitles me somehow to, uh, to your love for me, or at the very least your affection or your presence in my life. And man, it just, I expected to like it. I did not expect it to, to just get its hooks in me and just stay with me as long as it has. Uh, I saw it on my birthday and it was like the best birthday present I could have ever gotten. And yeah. Scott, I know you like it as well. Not I, quite as much as I do. Not as much. <laughs> but you haven't yeah. seen Dry Voice, so who's set? that's true? That's true. Um, yeah, uh, to put it pretty plainly, the movie rocked my shit pretty hard. Um, <laughs> I was completely enthralled, and I just I love any movie that takes a pretty simple idea and runs all the way with it. And as many times along the way, as you lose track of time and you think like, well, this is about as, we've reached a good point with this story now. We should be wrapping it up. It just keeps pushing it further, but not in a way that feels like it's extending it. It just feels like you naturally need to keep descending further and further into this. And yeah, all the stuff you're talking about with craft is so on point. Um, just the early parts where you already know the movie you're watching. So when the camera just pans over to the other side of the room and nothing's there, <laughs> You're like, well, is this the part where some stuff is happening? It might be, uh, but uh, Lee, what, what was decide when I'll just allows that discomfort to settle in and lets us just sit with not knowing the same way that she would, even if she didn't know she was being stalked by, even before she knows she's being stalked by an invisible man, the uh, threat that she lived in when she was with him doesn't go away. Um, the sense that he could be around every corner, that he's always watching her, that he's always keeping tabs on her. Even if there wasn't this kind of genre thing hanging over it, all those would still be emotions she would be uh, grappling with in some way. And so for the film to take so long and just linger in just that immediate post-traumatic stress uh, is really remarkable. And then by the time the genre stuff starts happening, it does not stop and it goes 
every direction you can imagine with it's so so good and it also speaks to the 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 brilliance of the sound design as well because you're dealing with a character who obviously is always watching but whether whether the whether she knows that he's invisible or not she's everything needs to be heightened when when you are when you are being monitored, it forces you to monitor everything else all the time. And so, you know, when, when, when she inadvertently kicks something, it is like deafening uh, for the audience. Um, And yeah, and it's, I remember something that, um, you know, comedians, when they talk about the comics that they like, the thing that they tend to say the most is like, this comedian, it's something they say about Brian Regan a lot. Like when he finds a premise, he will attack it to the point where it's just like, there's nothing left. Like he's gotten everything out of it that he can and has made it effective. And so like, yeah, I agree. There are moments where I'm just like, I, I don't know where we're headed after this yeah. because if this feels like a, like a climax to me, but then he finds another way to really to realize this concept to such an extent that when I think back on it, it's like, yeah, I can't think of any, anything left to explore. I think he handled it perfectly. And man, what a wonderful film. Yeah. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moss is the uh, MVP of this For countdown. Sure. Yeah. Um, of course, the MVP means most veiled profit. <laughs> 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 she's got like three or four of those things yeah. on <laughs> um all right so we're they learned their our, lesson from that person yeah. they came up and ripped one off yeah there's another one right underneath like robert Sachs sunglasses <laughs> <laughs> all right <clears throat> on to my number one film of the year uh this is another sundance uh experience for me and that's uh eliza hitman's never rarely sometimes always and uh tyler you uh you talked about a movie that has an issue to address or a point to make uh never really sometimes always does have that it is a movie about how despite the fact that abortion is technically illegal it is very very difficult uh to get an abortion uh for a lot of people uh not just practically if you happen to depending on where you live or how much money you have but also there's an emotional toll to the questions that you're asked and the 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 hoops that you have to jump through um there's a psychological toll uh so yes that exists the movie is undoubtedly a pro-choice movie an argument for uh abortion access but um that's not why it's number one on my list uh even though i agree with that um, it's because the the movie is such an elegantly executed, seemingly low key, but actually uh, universally uh, um, uh, resonant uh, story. Um, I t- it's there's. We, we started uh, or at the beginning of this episode, earlier in this episode, we were talking about Spike Lee and how he can be very visually uh, virtuosic. He can be uh, very loud. And um, sometimes it does, uh, it does seem to be this impression that that's, that's all that's new to say in cinema visually with a camera is something that grabs your attention. And a movie like, Never rarely, sometimes always, uh, which is directed by Eliza Hitman and cinematographer is Helena Luvar, uh, I think is how you say her name. Um, 
who has worked, who also shot Beach Rats, which is a, a beautiful movie. Um, they find things to do with framing and with lighting, with texture, visual texture, um, that are uh, incredibly emotionally impactful without being uh, ostentatious. They're and, and and part of that is a uh, a, a well placed trust in her two leads, um, uh, Sydney Flanagan and uh, oh, I don't remember her name. Um, the 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 cousin uh, talia Ryder is her name um where they have neither have ever acted before and Mm. yet um or at least not on film um and yet uh uh the their cousins uh and friends and the the things that we get from them the things that we learn from them about who they are about their relationship to their families their relationships to each other relationships to their boss for instance because they both work together at a grocery store um the things that we get from them without any of it being in the dialogue um so little is said in this movie that is of like specific overt substance um much more of what comes through about what the about the emotional journeys of these characters are in their looks or in the actions they perform for for one another there's a um there's a shot where one of them helps the other put on some makeup and and just and at that point in the movie that action like literally almost almost brought me to tears um uh, and the movie's full of just just gorgeous moments like that that are uh i mean scott you were talking about how uh there's certain types of cinema we don't see enough of uh anymore because so much of especially mainstream cinema is geared toward the big sort of event appointment tentpole whatever uh term you want to use um uh, i feel like never really sometimes always uh is an argument that there are still gargantuan things that can be done with uh intimate and and uh uh not uh, non-ostentatious uh, uh, movies. Yeah, absolutely. It's w- another one that fell a little outside my top five. Um, and which at first I had some some doubts about. Um, I thought it was maybe just too much of a process movie of like, well, these are the steps you have to go through in order to get an abortion. If you live in a certain socioeconomic class, you're, if you're a certain age, you know, if you fall in this girl's circumstances, basically. Um, but I think the way it builds her character and i don't want to kind of give away the game of that but the way it builds her character is very subtly uh constructed but very elegantly so um what it ends up revealing about her and her own limitations um limitations both in uh i guess mainly in her ability to seek help um are really touching and I think say a lot about how people end up uh, in these sort of circumstances of not kind of stretching out um, and demanding her own space and demanding what she needs, um, but of needing to be guided and then kind of the loneliness that comes from that. 
I mentioned Sydney Flanagan and Talia Ryder. I also want a quick shout out to uh, Theodore Pellerin, I think is, I'm not sure, Pellerin. Yeah. Uh, the actor who uh, plays a, a just a boy they befriend while they're waiting for the abortion to happen. Um, who's good in the movie, but I just happened to be watching on Becoming a God in Central Same. Florida right now. Um, and uh, he's fantastic on that show. So he seems like maybe a uh, one to watch type I of actor. I hope so. Yeah. All right. It's me next. Yep. Uh, my number one will be no surprise to avid listeners who care about my taste. Um, but as Hong Sang Su's yourself and yours, uh, which to get into my own, uh, process of determining when a movie comes out, um, I typically go by U S release year, unless the movie is older than five years. Uh, but yourself and yours premiered four years ago. So it barely qualifies. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it's got a digital release. Uh, it's one I've seen a few times. Uh, first saw it in 2016. Saw it again a couple of years ago and seen it again since. Um, but it is uh, about a couple who gets into a misunderstanding because the guy is told that uh, his girlfriend was seen like out drinking and just like making a big mess of herself in public. And she completely denies this. Uh, meanwhile, the girl is approached by a series of guys who swear they've met her before, but she claims to have no memory of them. And it turns out maybe she has a twin or maybe she's just making it up to mess with these guys. Or maybe there's duplicates of her just being sprouted up around, around town. Hong Sang Soo, as always, uh, kind of treads a strange line between very literal, very straightforward interactions that also seem to be taking place in some kind of otherworldly ghost purgatorial realm. Um, he has a very specific touch to these that are built on kind of everyday misunderstandings, but which seem to be, uh, yeah, like I said, just a touch surreal and a touch strange. Um, I was just pulling up the Times Wikipedia page and reminded that Scott Tobias said it was kind of a strange reversal on uh, the, what is that? The Obscure Object of Desire, the Boonwell movie, and has kind of that same feel of, any impossible thing could happen at any moment, but the way those impossible things happen will seem for a moment like real life. It has a kind of dreamlike logic where everything makes sense, only it doesn't quite add up. And the whole film ends up being a really, I think, emotionally charged and uh, potent meditation on kind of jealousy and misunderstandings and wanting another person to in a relationship to be this person that you imagine them to be, but they end up being something different. And, then the loneliness that comes from expecting certain things of others and not accepting, you know, kind of everything that comes with uh, dating a whole person. Um, yeah. It's a really, I think thoughtful and elegant movie. It's probably my favorite Hong Sang-soo movie still. Um, and I'm very pleased it finally came out. I, uh, I can't say much because I uh, haven't seen it in four years. I'm yeah, like, you, sure. I didn't revisit it. I saw it four years ago. Um, and I, I like it, but I think we, we had the same conversation. We talked about this on the summer movie preview episode. We did that. There are certain, there's a certain intentional imbalance of tone in yourself and yours that kept me at a, at a distance. I like the surreal stuff, but then there's also some, also some like stuff that I thought was more corny or self-aware okay in a way um certain uses i mean obviously hong sang su 
this is obvious to people who watch Hong Sang Zoom <laughs> movies that he likes the zoom lens. He loves um, the zoom lens. And sometimes there are, there are parts in the, in this movie that I felt that the zooming was a little arch maybe. Um, but, uh, it's not enough to say I dislike the movie. It's just, uh, I've never been able to, I, I can't put it, uh, at the top of, uh, I tend to like the Hong Sang Zoom, uh, after this, the Hong Sang Zoom of, of hotel by the river and especially, um, uh, on the beach alone at night, right? Uh, more, but yeah, it's still a good movie, right on. All right, so for me, a film that David loved, but alas, <laughs> technically a 2019 movie, it is Andrew Patterson's The Vast of Night, yeah. Um, a movie that, uh, even though uh, I had heard good things going in, uh, it still took me by surprise, um. I, and I, I recently did a, a more than one lesson episode about it. And uh, so I talked about it for a long time and I feel like I don't want to, I don't want to talk that long about it, obviously, but I, it, it feels like I don't even know where to start. It's just such a, a beautifully realized movie. One that despite being fairly short is also uh, very patient in trying to allow the atmosphere to sort of drive uh, the characters and the story. And then of course, as the, as the characters are learning more about uh, what's going on in their town uh, that drives this atmosphere of dread. It's interesting to me that there are people that have referred to this as a horror movie. Um, it certainly is a, is a, a sci-fi drama, but there are moments of dread. And it's worth noting that sometimes the moments of dread are, is just characters listening to something. Like there's no immediate threat, but it's just the realization that these characters have tapped into something that is bigger than they are and something that is completely foreign to what they know, which admittedly living in a small town is probably most things, but nonetheless, like uh, not knowing, sometimes not knowing what to do with it, with information, with new information is enough to really uh, frighten a person. And as these characters, as, as the information is, is introduced slowly, but surely uh, it's, I, I find myself just riveted uh, listening very close, obviously, because sound is very important, but also really watching the actors as they listen. And, you know, as they're hearing something, I have no choice but to hear it as well. I'm not seeing, you know, we're not cutting to the person that's calling in to the radio station. So uh, it actually does a very good job of, of uh, creating almost by default, like an empathy with these characters. You're doing the exact same thing they are. Um, and then uh, I also just, I think it's a really great night movie. I know that sounds strange, but uh, I like movies that as, as a, a, a night person, uh, especially living like in Los Angeles um, and uh, back when I would drive for Lyft, I would drive at night and just the world is different at night. There's just a different vibe and it's not purely visual. It's just the, the emptiness of the streets, whether it be a small town or a city. Uh, and I feel like this film captures that very well. Well, 
And also it's this idea that it's not even that late. It's that the town is rallied around this very specific uh, event Mm -hmm. that forces the film to be tremendously lonely, even though these characters aren't officially alone at any moment, they could go to the high school gym and be surrounded by people, but they are uh, alone in this, in this quest. And I just really appreciate the film's commitment to crafting a tone by um, creating a sense of geography within the town and really getting, really putting us in the position of these characters. And uh, I, yeah, I, it's, Oh, and then also the other thing that I really like is that it it's it's a movie that is it's in its own way like a TV show about mm-hmm. characters listening and hosting the radio, you know. And so it's like this celebration of you know uh, media throughout the ages and the way they all come together uh, to show the way characters can connect with one another, the way you know these. Uh, these characters connect with callers the way they connect with each other. And then we connect with them through a screen. Uh, There's just so much going on in this intimate, small genre movie. And I just love it so much. I I think, uh, I think I am one of those people who has described it as a horror movie. Uh, I I wouldn't have a problem with that. Certainly. Um, but I hadn't, I mean, you're right about it being, uh, what uh, all the, in, in multiple different ways, uh, a night movie. I'd never thought of that, thought of that term before, but one of my favorite things to do as much as, you know, I'm a champion for the theatrical experience and the sanctity of seeing a movie <laughs> in the theater. Um, uh, when it comes to horror movies, my favorite way to watch horror movies is alone in the middle of the night. And that's how I watch the vast of night and the, uh, the scene where Gail Cronauer is telling her very long story about her, her son. Is that right? Yeah. Um, uh, literally skin crawling. I like, I had the shivers yeah. from watching that scene. Um, but also what I love about, uh, the other thing I love about the movie uh, that it's, this is going to be very, uh, nebulous. Uh, um, but I've said before that all I'm looking for in a movie or any other sort of art is to not be bullshitted. I'm looking for, the artist's truth. I'm looking to believe that they believe what they're saying. And a lot of times when movies have flashy or very, you know, I mentioned the word arch before I mentioned the word ostentatious uh, as, as pejoratives so far in this episode, when movies have those types of touches, I'm often like, is this, is this director just trying to show off? And, but there are things in the vast of night, like, like the, like the picture dropping out and us just having a black screen and talking that I can't say that I know what Andrew Patterson is thinking or what he's trying to do, but I believe that he believes that that's meaningful. I believe that that means something to him that he's not just, won't this be a cool trick to just have the, have the picture fade out. I I believe that he believes it. And that's enough uh, for me. I feel like I'm in very good hands uh, the whole yeah. time and yeah. that, uh, the, yeah, he's not doing some, you know, I mean, for uh, 
any anytime somebody makes like a first or, or a second film, there's always the potential uh, for them to show off simply because they can, mm-hmm. but not not show off, but like experiment. And there's nothing wrong with ex- with experimentation. Um, but I this is a film that does engage in experimentation. But I agree with you. I feel like he knows why he is doing it. He may not telegraph it to us. He may leave it to us. But I don't think he's doing something solely because hey, what the hell? Neat. I get mm-hmm. to uh, I get to make a movie oh boy uh it's nothing like that and yeah it just uh like i said i had heard how how good it was going in and it still uh it still surprised me how how great it was scott your turn to naysay oh i haven't seen it because oh uh, i thought you had oh right because you don't have amazon i don't have amazon and as soon as they want to you know step up and let people pay for it uh, i'd be more than happy to but this sure. idea that is this topic for another day, but the increasing subscriptionification of movies is the most worrying trend for me because uh, I don't want to subscribe to five services to watch the new movies. Absolutely. Incidentally, my documentary, Real Redemption, <laughs> The Rise of Christian Cinema, is available at faithlifetv.com, $5 a month. Uh, yeah, that is, a to- we actually, that is a topic for another day. We should definitely do, we should definitely talk about that. Um, uh, does it bother you more because you're not a subscriber? Like, cause you have Netflix. Are you bothered by the fact that the five bloods is only on Netflix? Oh, uh, I mean, I'm bothered by that ideologically. Yeah. Um, obviously not literally cause I can still watch it, but right. like, <laughs> I guess I'm bothered by the whole system um, where, there's suddenly three new streaming service, major streaming services within the last six months that are debuting movies. Uh, and now with the pandemic, increasingly so. Um, and that's only going to increase, you know, I had Netflix and Hulu cause they were on the ground floor and they're like the original people in that racket. But uh, the idea that we all need to keep up, we all need to become TV people just to watch movies. No one and done. You pay I, for it once. But here's the, here's the workaround here is that paying for one month of the thing is about the same as a movie ticket. Sure. But so then just I do that and cancel it. I don't like keeping track. Okay. Well, that's see, this is the nanny state liberal here. It's <laughs> 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 everything done for him. Uh, no, no, I, think I just want to pay point. a price for one movie. Yeah. I, I go up to the I, ticket counter. Want to say one, please. And then that's yeah, exactly. the you, extent of my exchange. Yeah, exactly. You're a free market conservative, as it turns out. You, uh, <laughs> but no, I, no, it's interesting actually because, like a you know a hundred years ago, uh, studios were would if if a, if a theater or a theater chain wanted to show like one movie with like a big star, studios would be like, okay, yes, you can do that as long as you right. uh, get all these other movies that no one will want to see as well, and it's like. Yeah, that's kind of what they're doing now. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, it's interesting to see uh, there's a certain cyclical nature to things. Um, and it, it, it does bother, you know, I, I mentioned jokingly my, my film, like I, I did ask if, if it would be possible to make it available simply to rent uh, through Faith Life. And uh, I think they, they opted for not partially because like it is, it'd be $5 to rent or you can subscribe for $5, but yeah, then you have to keep track. And, and I just like the idea of 
if somebody just give somebody the the option hell make it six dollars to rent or five dollars to yeah. st- whatever yeah, it totally. is but like pay a but I'm, yeah i do like the idea of it's like i'm on board with watching this movie not with what your whole platform does yeah. you know what i mean i have no doubt that there are people that uh that would that would enjoy or have enjoyed my film that would not at all be on board with what faith life tv does you know what i mean and so, but by subscribing i'm i feel like i'm bashing faith life they've been very good to me <laughs> don't get me wrong but but it is a christian service and so i i you know as we've been as we've been publicizing and stuff i recognize like there are people who might not want to review the movie because for somebody to watch it they need to subscribe to a christian service and maybe this person's not not on board with that mm-hmm. as opposed to just making it available to rent a one-time thing and then it's you know we endorse this movie and then right. and that's all you know yeah, so i'm i'm also, kind of on board with you yeah it's also just the idea of like a movie should exist more than one place at some point in its lifetime. Like people were railing against the idea of Criterion releasing Netflix movies. They're like, that's ridiculous because everyone has Netflix. And like, to a certain extent, that's true. But should that be the only place a movie lives? No. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, uh, I'll probably just do the thing where if I want to watch Greyhound, I'll sign up for Apple TV and watch it and then cancel my subscription. <laughs> Look, there, we got bigger problems. That's, that's my... Uh, that's, that's true. Okay, as long as I'm on a movie podcast, uh, we kind of doubt. Okay. <laughs> well, we did the episode. Uh, yeah. You guys, we did the episode about the uh, top five and the episode about the streaming services. Uh, two, for can, one. Uh, two for one. And, and the episode about the Veiled Prophet. Yeah. That's right. With a little uh, a little supplement of oil dorado, don't you worry yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, you can find us at battleshippretension.com. Uh, I didn't review anything this week. Uh, sadly, there's no reviews on the website uh, <laughs> this week. Nothing came out the Fourth of July weekend uh, that I really know of. Uh, by the I time, I, by well, the time this repost, comes out, oh, go ahead. I was going to say you can repost my review of the truth, which uh, right. will yes, be streaming by the time people uh listen to this episode and you can just rent that like a normal person no subscription yeah just pay your price there you go by, find scott's review of the truth at battleshippretension.com by the time this airs there pro there should be a review of the beach house which i believe is a shutter exclusive uh at battleship retention so uh yeah now okay See, this conversation it's just gonna keep coming up <laughs> i know so, we review things Tyler, so far this year on BattleshipRetention.com, there have been reviews. I reviewed the, the Night House yeah. at Sundance. You reviewed The Lodge. Yeah. Now you've got The Beach House. In a few weeks, I'll have a review up of The Rental. Mm-hmm. Uh, there seems to be a trend this year. Yeah, and then obviously there's town, you know, townhouses coming up. Um, yeah, and outhouse um doghouse <laughs> and then before you know it you're tommy lee jones in the future just listing all the places where richard kimball could be hiding all right so that's a battleship you can email us at david at battleship or tyler at battleship you can follow me david on twitter at davy pretension you can follow tyler on twitter at tyler pretension tyler you mentioned you did a more than one lesson episode about the vast of night anything else to plug 
Uh, yeah, this week I am on friend of the show, Mike Siegel's uh, Travel Tales podcast, Ooh. talking about my, my trips to New Zealand and uh, various countries in Asia and Scotland and, and all of that. And uh, it was a good time. So you can check that out uh, at the, uh, wherever the Travel Tales website is. And Scott, do you have anything to plug? Yeah, uh, I just literally, before we recorded this episode, I recorded an episode with the Great Hearing Cast crew about Love and Tura. Uh, so look for that either oh. by the time this episode is up or very soon after. Not uh, uh, not to let the cat out of the uh, cat, any cats out of any bags for the Patreon listeners, but that's a top ten movie of all time for me. Hell yeah, it is. <laughs> that firework agrees uh, <laughs> fireworks for La Ventura alright um, well thank you for being here Scott yeah of course thanks for having me thank you at home for listening we'll get you next time bye bye This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 